fiber is going to be a part of the future. Until we can go faster than the speed of light, that's probably going to be an important part of our communications infrastructure. This is episode 219 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. This week, Chris took a trip outside the studio to visit St. Louis Park, Minnesota, where he could talk with Clint Pyers, the city's chief information officer. Back in the 90s, the community began to realize a vision that continues to evolve, but always integrates its high-speed fiber optic network. In this interview, Clint describes how the city's partnership with the school district started them on a path that has led to better connectivity for the municipality, local businesses, and even a number of the city's municipal dwelling units. St. Louis Park is also implementing smart policies to expand fiber infrastructure as a way to encourage choice of internet access providers. Now here are Chris and St. Louis Park, Minnesota's Chief Information Officer, Clint Pyers. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm sitting here today with Clint Pyers, the Chief Information Officer for the City of St. Louis Park. Welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Chris. Good to be with you. Well, I love talking to people in Minnesota. We're right here, just a little outside Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about St. Louis Park for people who, uh, I don't know, don't know where a New York Times columnist comes from. <laughs> We do have a lot of famous people from St. Louis Park, uh, Tom Friedman being one of them. Right. The Cohen brothers might be my favorite. <laughs> yeah, a lot, lot of uh, history here in St. Louis Park. St. Louis Park is a community that is uh, approaching about 48,000 people. Uh, we have 10 square miles, roughly, of, of land. We have about 41 or 42,000 people who come here to work every day in our 2,500 businesses we have about 23,000 households. Uh, 40 to 45% of those are uh, multiple dwelling units, which a lot of people don't uh, realize. We border Minneapolis in the southwest, close to the chain of lakes, and so that's it's a great, great advantage for St. Louis Park. Location, location, location. Right, and St. Louis Park, it's not so much a suburb as it is, it's, a, it's, it's more like a city, right? I mean, Yeah, we refer to it as micro-urban, I guess, is, is a, another way of looking at it, because we do have so many aspects of, of the city of, uh, the city life here. So one of the things that I've, I've long known about St. Louis Park is that you have some municipal fiber. Uh, your schools are connected by publicly owned fiber. Mm-hmm. There's an interesting partnership. Mm-hmm. How did the city first get You don't have a municipal utility. So you know, how did you get involved with fiber? Right. This really goes back to a longstanding uh, cooperative relationship between the city and the school district, St. Louis Park School District. As you know, we're separate units of government. We're one of the cities where our boundaries are almost coterminous. And for a long time, on a lot of different issues, including community education, sharing of athletic fields, the city and the schools district have have worked together. Fiber is no different. So back in the 90s, the IT director at the school district, who is still there, Tom Marble and myself, and a group of people from LOGIS, which stands for Local Government Information Systems. It's a consortium of cities uh, built around IT. We got together and we we were actually envisioning the idea someday, back in the early 90s again, of being connected by fiber. At that time, of course, we were relying on the cable company and the telephone company, it's all its copper wire, to connect our buildings. And yet it seemed at that time that fiber was going to become more and more cost justifiable and indeed it did. So the school district and the city instead of building separate networks, fiber networks, planned out a joint network and in the late 90s the school district embarked on connecting their school buildings and 
2004-2005, the city embarked on connecting its city buildings in part over the same cable pathways as the school district had previously built. So we did not duplicate those, we just extended to the buildings we needed to. So we started connecting fire stations, our municipal garage, our nature center, our recreation center, those kinds of buildings, city hall and police, of course. By the end of 2004, we basically had a joint fiber network, city and school district work together. We cooperate on maintenance. We have one locate service. And so we have that long tradition, again, of cooperation between the schools and the city. And uh, over time, we continue to add fiber to the city network. School district was pretty much done at that point once their buildings were, were finished. But our city council said it really makes sense whenever we reconstruct a street and the ground is open to at least put in fiber conduit, even if we don't put fiber itself. And so we've taken that approach since about 2006. And is that true of every street, more or less? Is it a case-by-case basis? I mean, like if you're like in a purely residential neighborhood, mm-hmm. um, is it still done there? It is still done there. Uh, the only places we don't do it are the places where we already have the fiber conduit. And, and the idea in the city council's mind and what I've tried to promote is that we don't know when and we don't know who's going to use it, but we really believe fiber is going to be a part of the future. Until we can go faster than the speed of light, that's probably going to be an important part of our communications infrastructure. So again, it could be the city that uses that to connect buildings. It could be a private vendor that comes in and says, hey, we're interested in leasing some of that fiber infrastructure that you have, and we're willing to pay you uh, for that. But the point is, there's no real reason for people to duplicate that. And if the infrastructure exists, uh, why not lease it? It's kind of like turning uh, you know, looking back in the, in the old days, and we said, you know, we ought to put roads everywhere because along roads come economic activity and economic development. We're really seeing the same thing in the 21st century. Our digital future is really our economic future as well. And so maybe fiber is really becoming the roads of the 21st century. Right. And it's interesting because you said it's a little different from when you might be leasing lines. Mm-hmm. Um, um, you know, in, in the Twin Cities, um, I'm avid bicyclist, mm-hmm. which means I almost always bike west. There's a few places I can go east, north, and south, but, mm-hmm. but this county has the best bike trails in the mm-hmm. metro. Mm-hmm. And so I'm also coming out this way. Your water towers, mm-hmm. they have, you know, you're leasing that space to telecommunications mm-hmm. providers. And right. so leasing fiber is not that much different from that asset that you're already leasing. Right? Absolutely. We have three elevated water towers in St. Louis Park. We have long-term uh, indefeasible you know, rights of use agreements, basically, long-term agreements with uh, many of the wireless carriers. And you're absolutely right, Chris, there's really no difference releasing this as a, a fiber asset. It's available. We identify what fibers we need now and in the future, and then the fibers that are still available are the ones that we're making available for lease. Right. Now, you have an official statement. Um, did you want to read that to us? What's sure. The, what motivates the city council or what they put down in sure. print? Yeah, sure, I'd be happy to. Um, City Council has set some major priorities uh, between 2015 and 2025, and one of them was around around broadband. And they basically entitled it, uh, St. Louis Park is a technology-connected community. And why is this important uh, to the City Council and the the City of St. Louis Park? What we believe is is a community's broadband speed and capacity requirements continue to grow, as technology and the internet continue to evolve. A community that is connected by a very robust and comprehensive broadband system will set itself apart 
and be better able to provide for economic growth, innovation, and community development. High-speed broadband enables the exchange of information in many different forms and is vital to the high-tech community as well as the medical industry and to the delivery of services in education, health, government, public safety, and for overall quality of life. And given the significant amount of fiber infrastructure in place that is owned by the city, which we recently discussed, uh, we are uniquely situated to take advantage of the digital economy. And so that's the belief that our city council and our community has. And so we use that as a, a mechanism by which to create strategies uh, and goals and action plans to achieve what that statement says. And of course, it's a long-term effort. But really, at the base of it, it's around community development. We don't do technology or fiber for the sake of technology and fiber. It's for, for some larger goal. Mm -hmm. And that larger goal is around being a competitive city where we can attract and retain people who want to live here, who want to work here, and who want to stay here. And in order to do that, we need to do more than just be in a good location. That's a great help, but it's not enough. And so we think that broadband in all its forms provided by a wide variety of players, certainly not just the city, the city is just a partner in this, is one way of, of maintaining that attraction. One of the things that I've heard in, uh, from other Minnesota local governments, uh, mm -hmm. St. Paul, Ramsey County, where I've had mm -hmm. some of these discussions is some pushback. You know, they'll say, even though conduit doesn't cost a lot of money, mm -hmm. and we agree that we'd like to be that kind of community where you just read that statement, they believe mm -hmm. that, that the high-tech jobs, that it's important to figure out ways of attracting them. Mm -hmm. They'll say things like, even though it doesn't cost a lot to put conduit in, that's money that we could spend elsewhere where mm -hmm. we know we're going to get a return on it, mm -hmm. whereas conduit is an uncertain return. Mm -hmm. Has that come up at all here in St. Louis Park? It is really not, because I believe in part... Our city council sees the future benefit of high-speed communication and that one of the things that we have found over time is that when the opportunities come along, we need to be ready. One of the things that we're going to talk about a little bit later is, I think, and, and maybe right now, is this, this leasing arrangement that we have for fiber. Whatever success we've had in leasing fiber, and we've, we've just started and we've had, we have a few agreements signed now. It's because we had the conduit ready, where we had the fiber strands available. We had interested players. Not everybody's interested, by the way, in the private sector in, in leasing from government. Right, right, right. A lot of there's a number of very large firms that have cast. Uh, they 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 have no interest. They they have none whatsoever. And you have a template agreement ready to sign. Our city council directed directed me and other staff members to put together. A, basically an agreement template that we can use whenever an opportunity comes along in a company, and frankly they've been small companies most far, mm -hmm. uh, so far, want to lease from us, they can sign a short-term lease agreement and, or they can sign a, an, an indefeasible right of use agreement, an IRU, and it's there and, and it's ready. And for our listeners, I think you know there's a difference between if you're willing to commit to 20 years, Correct. right? I mean, that's the IRU approach. Correct. And it's similar to the approach that is taken, for example, the water towers that we discussed earlier with the wireless carriers. I understand. They've got a big investment. They want to have an assurance that they're going to have the ability to use that asset for a long time. So that readiness is critical. It's absolutely critical. And we're seeing the results of that now as we've built out our fiber network over time 
by putting conduit in the ground or you know, MnDOT may be coming along Highway 7 and they're putting in fiber for their, mm-hmm. you know, their, their traffic management system. We put in fiber right along with them. It doesn't cost us very much and we have it available. And we are now to the point where we have about 50 miles of fiber between the school district and the city in St. Louis Park. We're, again, we're only 10 square miles and we're about 120 miles of streets. Well, we're approaching you know, about 45% of those streets having fiber on them. And now, when a player, a small company, wants to come in and maybe connect up one of their customers, there's a good likelihood that we're going to have fiber close by. And are those, are they generally looking for a business customer, a residential customer, a mix? It's been primarily, uh, to this point, a business customer that they're trying to serve. Over time, uh, we believe that fiber to the premise is really is really going to take off mm-hmm. that yes there was a time when copper was king and there was a time when coax was king and we really believe that fiber is going to be the next king right or queen. Well, <laughs> I want to come back I have a couple of quick questions mm-hmm. but I wanted to raise something I mean it's interesting to me your your community remains very bullish on this despite a significant hiccup yeah. in the history which was sure. you know a lot of cities um, either went down the Wi-Fi path themselves yes. or with partners yes you guys attempted to do a um, a uh, solar powered Wi-Fi project Correct. that that didn't didn't end well Correct. Um, but but you didn't give up you mm-hmm. learned from it I mean yeah. is that is that what I'm what I'm to understand yeah it was an interesting experience obviously to go down that path and a lot of cities did and it was unfortunate that our you know, provider at that time uh, was not able to deliver on that system. And I remember very clearly in the aftermath of that going to coffee shops here in St. Louis Park and I'd be recognized. And I think the thing that really struck me was people coming up to me and saying, aren't you the Wi-Fi guy? And of course, you know, I'm getting ready. <laughs> no, I'm the guy that's saving our city millions of dollars from, from, from having, because we have smart telecommunications policies and we're not leasing for our schools and everything. Right, right. right. And I'm going, well, that project didn't go so well. And they said, yeah, it didn't go so well. You know, the, the residents are saying, it's too bad that, you know, the company didn't get that done. And their next question to me was, what are you going to try next? And when are you going to do it? Because we're still interested in having competition. Mm-hmm. and choice. And that's part of what our community is telling us, is that city council get us competition and get us choice. The worst thing in the world is to have no choice, right? Mm-hmm. We, we get back into a corner. And so the city council has continued that policy and saying, okay, the Wi-Fi project didn't work out. You know, after the lawsuit was done, it cost us about a quarter of a million dollars. You know, in the big picture, you know, it was worth it. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we got as a result of that lawsuit was some excess fiber that was built by the provider added to our network. And we're not looking at being the ISP in the future. We are saying that we could be a provider of some of the infrastructure, though. Mm-hmm. And cities do pretty well at infrastructure. Well, let me ask you then. So we have a situation back to the leasing of the fiber where mm-hmm. you have a, a company, A, comes in and connects mm-hmm. a, a bank. And next to the bank maybe is another business. Mm-hmm. Is the conduit near that? Do you have extra conduit? I mean, how do you make sure that you're not, um, you don't run out of it mm-hmm. really quickly? It's, it's a good question. There are two things. One, again, we identify the available strands of fiber that we have in any given conduit. And we're typically leasing fiber strands, not the entire conduit in which the fiber cable exists. The other thing that we did was we 
put in typically two conduits when we put in the fiber a conduit infrastructure. The incremental cost to put in a second conduit when you're boring is, is very minimal. So now we have the ability to go back and add fiber to that empty conduit should we need that capacity in the future. And of course, as the cost of fiber continues to decrease, the it becomes more advantageous to do that. So it's really two things. We're looking at using up the available strands that we have. We don't know how long it's going to take. Yes, it is a first-come, first-serve to some degree in that regard, but we've made this available to any of the private sector players who are interested. And in the future, if we have more demand, we can go down that second conduit and add more, uh, more, more fiber strands. Okay, and so then the last question on this, I'm, we're a little off script because I, I just get enthusiastic about where we go with this, but um, you know, you're more of a technical person that has a lot of experience with this. Mm-hmm. You said you know, we just put fiber in the ground or mm-hmm. conduit in the ground when we can. Mm-hmm. How do you make sure that the conduit is, is broken or you know, that you have um, that, um, um, not broken in the sense of not working, but that you can get out of it where you need to? If you want to connect a, mm. an apartment building in the middle of a block, how do sure. you make sure that someone doesn't have to like you know, go to like a handhold half a mile away, come out, and then run it all the way back. Sure, sure. You're trying to put uh, the handholds, the access points, at strategic locations. It's also true that you can go back and add uh, access points, handholds, along the fiber network where you need it if if it happens to be that the ones you have don't serve that particular need. We're seeing that right now with folks who are coming in and leasing from us. And, and in fact, what they'll often do and typically do is put their own handhold next to our handhold to separate access and, and then we'll just connect them via a conduit. So that allows them to lease fiber strands from us, but then use their own handholds to go to the customers that they need to go to. Excellent. Let's talk about these agreements because you mentioned mm-hmm. that you didn't want to be caught flat footed when mm-hmm. someone is coming up. You presumably haven't negotiated these sorts of things before. Other mm-hmm. cities will have the same sort mm-hmm. of situation. Yeah. How are you ready for the first negotiation mm-hmm. to make sure that you have done all your homework and you can make it easy on the provider? Right. right. We kept getting approached by different people and we weren't ready. They weren't all that serious at that point, but they were, they were approaching us. And these are maybe local firms? Yeah, or? local, okay. for the most part, local small firms. They might be looking to connect apartment buildings yeah. and businesses and that sort right. of thing. Right, okay. and what they're looking for is a way to get from point A to point B without having to build their own infrastructure and lease from us instead if we happen to have the conduit there. So what we did was we, um, we engaged a consulting firm, uh, Columbia Telecommunications Corporation, which has done work for us in the past. And which almost everyone knows is CTC. CTC, right? exactly. <laughs> they, do, they do some great work. They had done a fiber study for us in 2012. One of their employees lives here at St. Louis Park, or that, at least she had. That's right. That's right. We engaged them to study rates for fiber leasing around the country and you know, it was all over the board. But we got a sense of what going rates were. And there were a couple communities here locally that were starting to embark on leasing fiber. So we got a sense of what those rates were, and those are the rates that we essentially built into um, our template, our, our template agreement. So now it makes it easy. We've got all the other conditions there, and then we have this area that identifies the segment that is being leased, the length of, of that segment, and then times a price per strand per mile, and that allows us to get, complete the agreement, essentially, as long as the provider is okay with that particular rate. Now, in some cases, 
we're looking at swapping assets as well. Let's say there's a company that comes in and says, you know, we'd like to lease this from you. And in exchange, we have this other asset. And if you find it valuable, would you be interested in that in lieu of a per strand per mile rate? And that's another way of doing it. So we may be looking for connectivity in a part of town where we don't have it for some reason. And we're being offered that. We'll take that in exchange. Of course, we have to assign a value to that that is at least as a, at least equivalent to what we would have gotten through the the payment. Great. This is all really it's really wonderful. I just I, I keep thinking to my to myself. It just either you have the most enlightened city council ever, or there's been a lot of background work, right? Because I remember um, we did this case study on Santa Monica, which has also done tremendous work around this. And I was speaking with Jory Wolf about it, and I would say. You know, it, it seems to me amazing that they let you reinvest the savings that you created. And he said, yeah. well, yeah, but I did a lot of work explaining the value and that sort of thing. Do you have advice for other CIOs or people that are working with a council that might be doubtful as to why all of this effort is, is worth it? I think it has to do with looking ahead and being willing to take some risks. And obviously, we, we're one of those communities that have taken some risks and they all haven't worked out. And the Wi-Fi program is a good example of that. There has to be a culture in this community, not just the city council, but the community as a whole that says, we expect our government to be on the cutting edge. We expect the government to be looking ahead to keep this a healthy place. We need to be looking in the future. We've had and are on our third round of Vision St. Louis Park. What was Vision St. Louis Park? It was the community telling the city council what it wanted St. Louis Park to be. Housing, transportation, economic development, redevelopment. Same thing happened in 2005. The same thing's happening again 10 years later. We're just starting a new process. So from that big cultural movement of looking forward for the next 10 years comes the attitude that we need to prepare in all ways. And one of those ways is communications and the ability for people to live here and to work here in a very dynamic way and in a way that enables them to connect to the rest of the world. And when you have a culture like that, it allows for these kinds of efforts. So I don't think it's about the technology itself. I think it's about creating a culture that says we're willing to take some risks for the sake of, of succeeding, with the idea of succeeding. And the idea that, you know, you won't necessarily succeed every time, but you're moving the ball down the field and you're thinking forward. You're not thinking back. You can't be afraid. You've, you've really got to be willing to, to try some new things. Again, our city council, if you were to be in a meeting with me and, and them, you would find them being more aggressive than me. I'm probably the more conservative one because I do know what goes into making these things work. Nevertheless, they're the ones who provide me with the inspiration and the adrenaline to say, let's, let's try some new things. Because no matter what's happened in the past, you know what? Our community still wants to try new things. Well, I think it's, it's just worth making sure people are aware. I mean, you have Comcast here. I'm sure you have some mm -hmm. of the best service that Comcast provides mm -hmm. in, in any of its markets in the Twin Cities. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing CenturyLink has made some of its gigabit investments mm -hmm. in this community. Mm -hmm. You're not a backwater where you have to, you know, you, yeah. but you're looking at providing a choice and making sure that, yeah. that you're ready for the future. Right. You know, we have a CELEC that's providing, you know, a lot of their services, including fiber, the last mile still may be copper in most cases. Comcast is doing something similar with coax and fiber. 
And what we're looking at now is what is that next wave? And many of us, including myself, believe fiber directly and completely to the premise is part of that next wave. So it's not to the exclusion of the others. It's to add a choice to the others. And it's to provide some competition that hopefully makes it the pricing better for our, our residents and businesses as well. But, but also to say, if we're going to take advantage of what's coming in the future technologically, we believe that fiber provides the capacity for that in a way that very few, if any other, technologies really do. Well, and that leads us really nicely into the final topic, which is apartment buildings. Yes. But in the back of my head, I've been meaning to work this in somewhere, and that's just, you know, in addition to providing that vision for the future, mm-hmm. I have you ever calculated the kind of cost savings you're seeing by self-provisioning just for the sure. municipal assets? Sure, sure. In fact, that kind of goes back in history to when we first connected the city building. So in 2003, when we were doing this analysis, at that time, we were paying approximately $45,000 a year to connect our city buildings and network them and connect them to the internet, which was, you know, starting to take off and the, the web, of course, was starting to take off. What we discovered was that it would cost us about $380,000 to connect all of our city buildings with fiber ourselves. Well, your ROI you know, is, is maybe eight or nine years. Right, with all the with all the operations, it could be 10 or 11. Sure. Yeah. And so, of course, you look at the obsolescence factor, right? You know, is fiber going to deteriorate? And if so, how long is it going to take? And secondly, is it going to become obsolete? So you guess, if, and you don't have to guess too hard because we've had transatlantic and you know, transoceanic fiber for a long time that isn't deteriorating very fast. So we figured that the, the life of that asset is going to far exceed eight or nine years. And then uh, we looked at the potential obsolescence. And again, until things can go faster than the speed of light, it's probably going to be a player. And it became an easy justification to say to our city council, we'll get our money back within about eight or nine years. We're going to build the capacity in fiber and have the capacity in fiber for bandwidth that it far exceeds T1 lines back in the old days, you remember. Mm-hmm. And you were looking at like you get, you know, one megabyte per building that we were sharing. Right, and that's and that's and that cost allocation for a nine year payback requires that you would have paid forty five thousand dollars a year continuously. Correct. When in fact we know that probably you would have been closer to five hundred thousand dollars <laughs> a year by the end of that ten year cycle. Exactly. That yeah. you know prices weren't going down at that time. Right, they're going up, and then your yep. needs go up, and not just that. I mean, I would I would guess that. Um, owning your own network provides you with a higher degree of reliability, right. and that's when your first responders are dependent on that network. You exactly. need to make sure that you really have exactly. full control of it. Exactly. And that's what led into then, of course, when you own a fiber optic network, part of what you're relying on is the availability. And much of what we've done in the city here and putting in fiber and conduit in some of these construction projects is, is it's enabled us to get redundant paths to the different city buildings. Uh, because there was something called fiber cuts. Right. And well, and we had a tornado came through not far from here, you sure. know, just uh, two or three years ago. Sure. And, you know, that's the other beauty part, of course. All, all of our fiber, uh, fiber infrastructure is underground, in our case. So we're far less susceptible to above-ground damage on poles and things like that. So our reliance on it is, is great, but so is our availability. And you put all those factors together of cost, the ROI the speed, you know, and it became 
a fairly easy decision for this, this city council to say, go forward and do this. And as the benefits accrue, right, because first we were carrying data between the buildings, and then we were able to add telephones when we went to voice over IP, and then we were able to add video for surveillance cameras, and then we were able to connect our 800 megahertz system via fiber instead of building a giant tower to the Hennepin County Sheriff's Office. And now you've got those four different types of technologies that you're able to carry over two fiber strands to each building. The benefits just grow and grow and grow. Our staff sees it, our city council sees it. It, it really has paid off. Okay, so I, I mentioned that we we're going to lead into the, the apartment buildings. Yeah. Sure. So um, this is something that has come up in cities across the country where they're trying to figure out how... Yeah. Um, you know, certainly you're looking at a good solution for the single family units, um, mm-hmm. single family homes where person owning a home, they can choose what provider they have. Mm-hmm. If you're renting, you may not have that choice. Right. And so as I understand it, you've worked out some voluntary agreements and, and yes. maybe there will be some opportunity in the future to put that into a requirement. Mm-hmm. But let's start with where you are. What have you done with some of the, I'd say, more forward thinking building mm-hmm. managers and landlords? Right. Well, another piece, Chris, came out of the 2012 fiber study was the idea of working with uh, MDUs uh, or mixed-use developments where there's maybe commercial as well as residential use of buildings and trying to find a way to encourage them to provide the capacity for broadband within their buildings as they're developing them. So we started with newer developments, and it's typically redevelopments. As you know, St. Louis Park is a pretty fully developed community. So when we see development, it's usually something else being torn down and something new being built. So we, we started a couple of years ago working with some of the, the new developments. We have been able to encourage them to provide a broadband capacity within their buildings and to their buildings. So specifically what ends up happening and the way we've written up some of these voluntary agreements is to first try to be reasonable, what's going to work for the developer and what's going to be most cost-effective for the developer. The idea is to to build capacity in the form of a two-inch conduit between their building and the public right-of-way where there typically is our telecommunication providers or will be telecommunication providers in the future, high-speed telecommunication providers. And that conduit goes to their point of presence, their telecommunications point of presence in their building, And then from that point of presence, it goes to each of their wiring closets, typically one per floor. And then from those wiring closets, we're requiring two connections to each living unit and working unit that are capable of gigabit speeds. So Cat 5e, Cat 6, basically. Right, exactly. The, the, The carrot here, if there's carrot, is to say, look, we can provide you those specifications, and when a high speed provider comes down the road in the future, literally down the road, they'll be able to tie into the conduit that you've put out there. And that will give you an additional provider beyond the current cable company and the current telephone company. This will make you broadband ready for them. And when they do come along, they'll know you're there. It's easy for them to get in because the cost of doing that retroactively after the building is built is pretty high. Mm-hmm. While there's no building there, it's easy to add this capacity now as you're building, and it's less expensive, and it'll be more attractive 
presumably for your clients as well, to know that your living units and your working units are already waiting for that provider to come by. Now, uh, that is that is conjecturing that someday in the future, uh, broadband is going to be uh, available pretty ubiquitously throughout this community and that people will want it. From a, from a different provider. From a, a third right. provider. Right. And I, I, you know, when you look at the kind of investments we're seeing, mm-hmm. um, increasingly those uh, apartment buildings that are ready for competition and have landlords that are ready to welcome that in, yeah. it's a really ripe target for some of these smaller firms exactly. or Google. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> right. So you have yeah. a range of companies that are looking for those kinds of opportunities, especially when this landlord will know that the city has a way of, in most cases or right. in many cases, um, helping a provider get yeah. from Minneapolis, perhaps, to that wiring closet. You right. know, it's not like it's not like a small firm will have to build their wire, their 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 fiber network mm-hmm. all the way down the street to mm-hmm. find and connect mm-hmm. to that apartment building. Right. And now we've seen this with U.S. Internet in Minneapolis, and of course, those buildings existed. So U.S. Internet has to do, for example, a lot more work to get into an, a multiple dwelling unit or an MDU. Mm-hmm. Um, we're trying to make it ready for a player like USI or somebody else to come in and more easily get in there. We have right. And sorry, I was just for people who aren't aware. The um, I mean, Google bought this company WebPass, which mm-hmm. is doing this in five major cities, sure. and and I think it woke up a number of people in the media to this model of mm-hmm. of just focusing on um, apartment buildings. Mm-hmm. And there are providers all across mm-hmm. the Twin Cities. There's mm-hmm. probably at least three or four mm-hmm. that specialize only in apartment buildings. So, sure. So you have those sorts of players that are interested. This isn't very speculative, is what I'm trying no, to say. Right. It's <laughs> happening. It's happening. Absolutely. And it's, it's really been interesting because in the seven deals that we've been able to negotiate without any ordinance. Handshake agreements with landlords. Well, it's more than handshakes. We put it in the, there's a, usually a development but agreement. Oh, right. but, but we didn't have an ordinance in place that required it. So we sat down with them and said, you know, here's what we think is good for you, for the business, and, and what's good for our, our, the people who are coming here to, let's say, live Mm-hmm. or work in that mixed-use development, and the developers get it. They understand. And what this does is simply clarify for them what they need in order to be prepared. But we've had no, none of these seven uh, developers go away and say, this is a bad idea. Which would be their right if they wanted to. It would be. It would be, absolutely. So we've been able to use them as a, essentially an experiment to say, can we make this work? We've made it work voluntarily, and now we're putting those same requirements, yes, in the form of an ordinance, just to make it simpler. But because we haven't had any resistance to this, because I, I truly believe the market is going in this direction anyway, and that smart developers understand that, again, we've just clarified it for them, and now we can kind of go forward and make it a standard, a standard requirement. We were able to do a, a deal some time ago with the West End development over there on Park Place Boulevard and, and 394 uh, back in 2008 when that went live. And part of that development agreement included something like this, mm-hmm. not quite as mature as this, but we did get uh, very similar requirements uh, put in uh, with Duke Realty at the time for the West End. So I, I do believe that the, the developers don't see this as an onerous kind of thing. They see it as a smart thing to do. Are these all new buildings? Uh, the ones that we uh, have done thus far seven. Are, are new buildings, with one exception, and that is um, that is Meadowbrook Manor, which has been here for quite a long time. 
and they they voluntarily, as they're uh, redeveloping part of their complex, putting in a new clubhouse, said, "Yeah, we'd like to put conduit in from that new clubhouse out to the out to the public right of way, and we're hopeful that somebody's going to come in and serve us as well." The reason I ask is that there is a significant group of developer of, of building managers or landlords that mm-hmm. are saying. Um, we prefer to get these marketing payments, which is what they're called, mm-hmm. from the incumbent provider. Mm-hmm. And we prefer to try to limit our tenants to just one option because yeah. that gives us an extra $20,000, sure. $30,000 a month, depending on the size of the unit. I mean, sure. just, just throwing some numbers out there. Sure. And that sounds like maybe are you dealing with developers rather than the, man, the building managers? And it's earlier in the process and maybe they're more receptive yeah. at that point? Correct. Yeah. And, and of course, that's a gray area sometimes. When does the management come in and you're starting to deal with them versus the uh, developers themselves? But at this point, yes, we've been dealing during the development uh, agreement period. I understand what you're saying, and of course, it's the right of that building owner and manager to to have whatever agreement they want. What I believe is people like competition. Mm -hmm. People like choice. That's, That's such a theme that we hear from our residents and businesses, and that's something we can help do. We can't be the provider, but we can set the environment in which choice and competition can really exist. It does occur that some building managers do that. And I believe that they will hear from their tenants, be they residents or businesses. You know, I've heard about this other provider out there. Have you thought about allowing them into the building? And if that other provider's offering is compelling enough, I truly believe that that will will shift the manager's stance. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, this has been terrific. I really appreciate you taking all this time to walk us through it. I Mm -hmm. think you're doing some really great stuff. I, you know, in my work with Next Century Cities, We deal with people around the country that are coming to us and saying, you know, where has anyone done this MDU agreement? Mm -hmm. And I think you might actually be the second, although the people that did it first in Loma Linda, California, it's more or less incomprehensible to most of us what they did. And the way you're doing it, I think, will actually be replicable more widely. You know, one of the other areas we're looking at is single family homes, not trying to make it onerous on the, the homeowner either. And I believe that the fact that we're going down most residential streets here as we have the opportunity to put in fiber infrastructure is about the most and the best that we can do because if I look at other examples, let's let's say next door in Minneapolis, if the conduit is in the ground in a residential area, it's relatively easy, relatively easy, it's Mm -hmm. nothing's easy, relatively easy for the provider to go from there into each of the homes. And I'm not sure they have to do exactly the same things that an MDU or other complex would have. But it's it's an exciting time to be here and it's an exciting time to, to be working in fiber and, <laughs> and really, years. <laughs> really looking at the future and you know, sort of like planting a tree. This will, uh, I, I hope, long outlive me. <laughs> Terrific. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for your time. That was Chris talking to Clint Pyers, Chief Information Officer from St. Louis Park, Minnesota. They were talking about the community's fiber network and the policies they use to encourage expansion and competition. Remember, we have transcripts for this and other Community Broadband Bits podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. You can also follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter where the handle is at muninetworks.org. 
Thank you to the group Roller Genoa for their song Safe and Warm in Hunter's Arms, licensed through Creative Commons. And thank you for listening to episode 219 of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. <laughs>